Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter, AudioCast. I'm your host, Dr. M. This is volume 13, issue number 51, which happens to correspond with the week of December 4th in 2023. This week, we're going to look at literature review, part one. Part two, we're going to do maternal brain changes, and then a recipe of the week. The free thoughts this week. There's a picture of a water lily that I found locally in a neighbor's yard. And a water lily is sort of a beautiful example of the way biological species can follow the sun and the moon's light signals. Open when the sun shines and closed when not. Other lilies have adapted to being open during the nighttime, and this sort of parallels humanity and our reality that we can adapt. Many humans have learned to live well in diverse environments over the centuries. The key remains to try and be most in line with our genetic makeup. The simplest example would be skin color, i.e. a light-skinned person has to avoid excessive sun, metaphorically close the lily for most of the day. In a place like Charlotte, North Carolina, if your ancestors lived in, let's say, northern England, where uh, where the sun, you know, in, in northern England is less intense, but in Charlotte, North Carolina, it's pretty intense comparatively. Contrast that to the darker-skinned individual who may be exposed to the sun throughout the entirety of the day cycle due to reflective melanin in the skin. The risk is not do, of not doing so is not UVB damage so much as issues related to vitamin D insufficiency, whereas the person with light skin is at risk for UVB damage and skin cancer. So we have to understand our genetic potential, but it's also fascinating when you think about the water lily that we have the adaptability, like other plant and animal species, to live in diverse environments as we learn what it's like to have our genetics parlayed into that environment. Okay, if you haven't, I highly encourage you to listen to the podcast number 58 with Dr. Randy Jurdle. He is one of the preeminent researchers and most well-cited in the history of epigenetics research related to understanding what it means to live in a world where we're adaptable in it. It's absolutely fantastic conversation about the imprintome. It's a little bit complex at times, but the vast majority of it is not, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Okay, literature review. Number one, high resting cardiac vagal tone or control, otherwise known as CVC, is associated with more flexible emotional responding to an external stress stimulus. With regard to vagal changes, the evidence shows us that stress will decrease cardiac vagal tone, control. Being relaxed and not stressed out is always better for our cellular physiology. CVC is now known to be a marker of relaxation and thus emotional control. Whenever you find yourself emotionally dysregulated, there is a good chance that your vagal tone will be off. Work to meditate, exercise, relax, do everything you can to increase your cardiac vagal control, and that will help you cope. This is super important for kids. When we see kids going sideways in emotional experiences, whether it's related to pain stimulus, emotional stimulus, anything, we need to help them unwind that fear and that pain and that stress so that their physiology stays solvent, right? So this is where we help to teach our kids to meditate, to deep breathe, to do the things they need to do to tolerate whatever situation they're in. Number two, continuing on this same theme, a study from Dr. Huberman's lab notes that briefed 
structured box breathing and meditation reduces systemic stress. However, breathwork is superior in this case to meditation. Quote, daily five-minute breathwork and mindfulness meditation improve mood and reduce anxiety. Breathwork improves mood and physiological arousal more than mindfulness meditation. Cyclic sighing is most effective at improving mood and reducing respiratory rate. Controlled breathing or breathwork practices have emerged as potential tools for stress management and well-being. Three different daily five-minute breathwork exercises compared with an equivalent period of mindfulness meditation over one month. The breathing conditions are, one, cyclic sighing, which emphasizes prolonged exhalations, two, box breathing, which is equal duration of inhalations, breath retentions, and exhalations, and three, cyclic hyperventilation with retention, with longer inhalations and shorter exhalations. The primary endpoints are improvement in mood, anxiety, as well as reduced physiological arousal, i.e. respiratory rate, heart rate, heart rate variability. Using a mixed effects model, we show that breath work, especially the exhale-focused cyclic sighing, produces greater improvement in mood and reduction in respiratory rate compared with mindfulness meditation. Daily, five-minute cyclic sighing has promise as an effective stress management exercise, end quote. That comes to us from Balban et al. in 2023. I have a link in the, in the newsletter notes to a YouTube video that demonstrates the simple technique to reduce stress. I highly encourage this training relaxation technique for all children and their parents to reduce vagal sympathetic tone. This is very akin to 478 breathwork technique that reduces cardiac vagal control. Right? So this is a big deal when we think about this. If we want to increase our cardiac vagal control, we want to really reduce the sympathetic overload. So we want to talk about mediation measures, and this breath work is super important. And, you know, it sort of sounds like this. You sort of breathe in deep, you go... So you're breathing in deep, taking a second breath, and then blowing it out long. That, to me, is a really good way. And you'll feel yourself change pretty quickly with that. So highly encourage that to be done. Number three, emotional granularity is a verbal representation of effective experience, a process by which individuals differ in their ability to create instances of emotion that are precise and context-specific, the positive, of which is emotionally healthy with a converse negativity as well. People of a higher positive emotional granularity state are happier and less prone to mood dysregulation. They are more capable of handling stress. It comes to us from Homan et al. H-O-E-M-M, excuse me, M-A-N-N et al. 2021. And now, quote, emotional granularity is the level of specificity that characterizes verbal representations of an affective experience. When asked to report how they feel, some individuals use emotional words like happy, excited, sad, and angry to represent highly differential experiences. These individuals are higher in emotional granularity and report their emotional experience in more precise, differentiated terms, using discrete emotions like happy, sad, angry, in a way that captures the distinctiveness of these words. Others represent their experiences in more global terms. These individuals are low in emotional granularity. They reported their experience in global terms, using discrete emotion labels to communicate only the most general of information, typically pleasure and displeasure. They use words like angry, afraid, sad, interchangeably, not distinguishing between discrete emotional terms. 
Yen Tan et al. Y E N T A N et al. 2022. So, emotional granularity is super interesting science to me. It shows in very concrete ways that brain's biological responses are different based on experience and how you respond to the experience in your mind. Giving context and precise word meaning is granular and healthy. Moving through emotions is healthy. We have learned so much about the lack of feeling and emotional understanding around experience that our culture has had as a baseline ethos. It is a good thing that we are learning this and growing emotionally as a society. So attempt to become more emotionally granular about how you experience things. The Marlboro man of old, who doesn't experience and feel, doesn't talk about feelings, that's a suffering way to live, not the best. So finding that balance point between the Marlboro man and the new Renaissance guy is what we're looking for, where we're able to be strong when needed, emotionally firm when needed, but also soft and light and able to process emotion when we come down from whatever place we're at that is differential like that. Four, quote, circadian rhythm disturbance is a common feature of many psychiatric disorders. Light is the primary input of the circadian clock, with daytime light strengthening rhythms and nighttime light disrupting them. Therefore, habitual light exposure may represent an environmental risk factor for susceptibility to psychiatric disorders. We perform the largest to-date cross-sectional analysis of light, sleep, physical activity, and mental health. We examine the independent association of day and night light Exposure with covariate adjusted risk for psychiatric disorders and self-harm. Here comes the kicker. Greater nighttime light exposure was associated with increased risk of major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD psychosis, bipolar disorder, and self-harm behavior. Independent of nighttime light exposure, greater daytime light exposure associated with reduced risk and major depressive disorders, PTSD psychosis, self-harm. Avoiding light at night and seeking light during the day may be a simple and effective non-pharmacological means of broadly improving mental health, end quote. Burns et al. 2023. Not much to add here. This is really straightforward. Get to bed early. Wake up early. Enjoy the light of the day. This is a competent way of living. Add to this eating well and most mood issues will fade away. Oh, and limit social media and screen time. So this is not a very difficult thing to understand. For kids or adults who have mental stresses, waking up, seeing the sun come up, spending your day enjoying the light and then getting to bed early without tons of light around you is going to be much more beneficial for our outcomes and mental health. Big, big deal here, folks. Okay, section two. Maternal brain rewiring helps prepare a mother for motherhood. It has always fascinated me how a mother can change so many things in her physiology in order to birth and then feed a child. Female physiology is like the ocean, minimally explored and understood at its depth. Now we have a paper looking into some of these changes that lead to improved outcomes. The abstract from the science paper, quote, During pregnancy, physiological adaptations prepare the female body for the challenges of motherhood. Becoming a parent also requires behavioral adaptations. Such adaptations can occur as early as during pregnancy. But how pregnancy hormones remodel parenting circuits to instruct preparatory behavioral changes remains unknown. We found that action of estradiol and progesterone on galanin expressing neurons in the mouse medial preoptic area is critical for pregnancy-induced parental behavior. Whereas estradiol silencing 
mouse medial preoptic area, otherwise known as MPOA gal neurons, and paradoxically increases their excitability. Progesterone permanently rewires a circuit node to promoting dendritic spine formation and recruitment of excitatory synaptic inputs. This MPOA gal specific neural remodeling sparsens population activity in vivo and results in persistently stronger, more selective responses to pup stimuli. Pregnancy hormones thus remodel parenting circuits in anticipation of future behavior need, end quote. Amari, A-M-M-A-R-I at all 2023. This is so satisfying. It is clear that the brain of a pre-pregnant woman is dramatically different than the mother and, and her pregnant situation, right? It is absolutely beautiful. The behavior of a mother is so heavily shifted toward protection of the infant, self-survival, and growth. This is a truth that once a woman becomes a mother, she sleeps with one eye open, forever watching her children. It's a beautiful species survival mechanism. Women will increase food and water intake naturally for the growth of the second body on board. They will increase heart rate and cardiac volume for the placental activity. They will shift their microbiome to be close to a metabolic syndrome type to store more weight for fetal growth and postnatal breastfeeding. They give up so much. Kudos to all mothers. Female physiology is stupendous and daunting to understand simultaneously. It is something that I have desperately tried to understand, continue to feel like I struggle, but love learning every chance I can. Women's physiology is beautiful and daunting just it just is recipe of the week cucumber salad called miseria this stuff is great rich in potassium vitamin c k uh acids protein and water i loved eating this as a kid essentially you're basically taking cucumbers onions mixing them in a bowl mix other ingredients including greek yogurt dill chopped up white vinegar a little bit of sugar salt to taste chill it and eat it good stuff you're at the Recipe is in the newsletter. Go ahead and look at it. Song of the Week is Heat of the Moment by Asia, a classic from the early 80s. Loved it as a kid. And I think that's it for the week, folks. Uh, appreciate everyone as always. Have a great day and hug those kids. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational informational purposes only. Not a substitute advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other health care professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.